Yes, sorry. You're saying? <laughs> I don't even know what to think about this nonsense. It took it took up so much of my brain space. It was so long. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast where we discuss film, antiquity, everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Colin McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about Quo Wattis, the 1951 historical epic by MGM Studios about the persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero. Is that the fair description? Is that That's how I described the movie. I was going to say, I should have just said the 1951 historical epic by MGM Studios. No, I think that's a totally fair description of this movie. That's okay. what, like, the main storyline is. Yeah. That's, like, okay. that's the point. <laughs> oh, I forgot to... Oh, I was going to think up... I was going to look up a quote of, like, a stinger or something like that that we, we'd open, but I couldn't remember any of the freaking quotes from this movie. <laughs> I wrote Except down for in the very end, where he says, Quo Wattis Domine. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down a few. I like in the intro, it goes... The Antichrist known as Nero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what? <laughs> he has another. I should have looked. I was trying to find a, a copy because, like, uh, Petronius's like farewell speech had a couple of good. It did. It did. Where he's like, he's like, like, beat your people, but don't beat the arts. Or I forget. That's not exactly what he says, but something, something that like he's that. like, mutilate people, but don't mutilate the <laughs> so arts. Dramatic. I also like at one point Marcus says, "As long as there's money to pay the army, Rome will stand." I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. well, he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not, not wrong. wrong, yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's – we got into a kind of weird start, but I guess, yeah, we should probably start with our formal question, <laughs> which is Eli, this – yeah, this 1951. This is like – well, we'll get into it, but how did you – did you dig this movie? I did not dig this movie. It it was too long. It was way too long, and uh, I did not dig the big, like, overarching romance story. It felt – really forced and weird and uncomfortable through the whole thing and so really i just think it's a really far too long non-love story no i did not dig it (laughs) yeah i i i'm in the same sort of boat like there i run up i just most of my i i also i had to do it i had to watch it in two viewings one 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 of which was actually in the bathtub (laughs) as i very nero of you yeah, it was a super Nero move on, on my part. But it's the only way to really enjoy the opulence of Rome is oh, somebody was sort of hand feeding grapes to me. <laughs> Palm fronds, you know. Yeah. But yeah, so I have, um, I wrote down, as you can see, a ton of notes about this movie. I have some thoughts. I also recently took a trip because as we get into the sort of classic historical epics of the 50s and 60s, uh, we're going to be doing Cleopatra, and I think I feel like Ben Hur. We need to talk yeah. about Ben Hur because I want to. I want to. It's been a while since I've seen Ben Hur, but I need to think about that movie in relation to this one. I got some books from the library to educate myself <laughs> about this sort of period of cinema. So I got one called "Of Muscles and Men," edited by Michael Cornelius, uh, which is just a collection of essays, and then another one called "Epic Spectacles and Blockbusters" by Sheldon Hall and Steve Neal. That's really kind of more about the like maybe like behind the scenes or like the, the sort of ins and outs, like the, both like the technology, technological innovations and the kind of mm-hmm. politics and business side of, of sort of the movie industry. Basically like it's like a whole history of Hollywood. Sounds fun. Yeah. But this movie has a sort of interesting place 
in Hollywood. So it's 1951. So it's based on a book uh, by a Polish mm-hmm. author named Henrik Sienkiewicz. Yeah, I, I, I was not super clear on that pronunciation. I might edit that. I might edit out me trying to say his name because it, it's based on a, uh, an 1896 Polish novel of the same name. I was surprised name, how old the novel was, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's very really, old. Really old. And from, I, I was reading the, I haven't read the novel, but I was reading a sort of plot description and it's fairly yeah. similar. It, it deviates a little at the end, but the general arc is pretty similar. But yeah, so like the MGM, this is, I mean, so we're in the, the studio system of Hollywood at this time. We're kind of like these, there's sort of this vertical integration where a studio, you know, they own the lot, they effectively kind of own the actors or the actors are sort of, mm-hmm. uh, they stay within the studio and so this was MGM's big push. They they had the rights to the book. They got them. The, they got the rights in the '30s, but a little thing called World War II happened <laughs> that made filming in Italy difficult. Yep. Uh, so they post. So they postponed until after the war, and then they yeah they filmed it uh, in a sort of Roman studio. They filmed it on location in Italy, and this movie. So like. I was reading that a lot of the movies like immediately after the war, like 1949 to like 1950, something like that tended to be much a little smaller budget. Like many of the films were sort of two and $3 million movies. This movie was a $7 million movie, <laughs> which back then was like it's crazy. Funny. Like it's more than, tw- yeah, it's like more than twice what sort of contemporary movie. Like for example, there was, Another film, uh, Samson and Delilah, kind of of a similar, you know, biblical mm-hmm. yeah. Mediterranean epic. That one was like three million, okay. something like that. So this was kind of, this movie is, I think, I would argue the so is kind of the original blockbuster film. There's a, the, the the review in Variety actually called it a box office blockbuster, <laughs> uh, which is. I also learned that term comes from World War II bombs. It's like a blockbuster was a kind of bomb that I, you dropped on a city. Wow, or, never thought about that before. Yeah, and so this is kind of the one of one of the first like true blockbusters. So the idea that you can make, you know, this movie is like the avatar of its day. It's like the most <laughs> crazy expensive, you know, yeah. film. But like if you make it that big of a, you know, you make this crazy expensive film, but there's a market for that. These kind sure. of super giant films. This movie made. 11 million dollars yeah. didn't it like save uh, mgm from bankruptcy or something technically yes yeah <laughs> so i mean good for them i guess mm-hmm. sure yeah you know yeah but it, so there, there's a couple of things i i kind of want to talk about just about the the sort of context of the of this film uh and end of this genre because we're getting into this age where this genre is kind of uh, this the sword and sandal we've been calling it um, in Italy. It will be known as the peplum films because this movie, among others, is going to inspire a huge wave of films in Italy through the late fifties and early sixties. Yep. But yeah, like this, just this the genre in general because it's. I was reading. I read something kind of that I thought was interesting in that one of the authors of these books was saying how whereas like most film genres are, they're kind of they're like the the names for film genres describe the tone of the genre like. Thriller, horror, yeah. comedy, tragedy, mm-hmm. etc. Though it's this and westerns are kind of the two where it's more about like the it's like an aesthetic. Sure, yeah, it's about the like it's about or it's like even like the setting and I mean you can have westerns that aren't you know a western doesn't necessarily have to be set in the American West mm-hmm. and I guess a sword and sandal doesn't necessarily have to be in the ancient Mediterranean or does it? 
I guess I I think I've always thought of it as taking place in the ancient Mediterranean. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of an exception. Well, I guess like maybe like I'm thinking like Conan the Barbarian, but that's even like that's like almost a different genre yeah. in of itself because that's kind yeah. of fantasy. I've heard sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. I've heard okay. as for that that yeah. kind of where there's like wizards and monsters and things like that. But yeah, this is a genre that is, I think, largely defined. Like, it has these trappings. Yeah. Well, it's also, like, a lot of the things that Life of Brian was making fun of. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's, it's, it's interesting. I was, I was going to bring that, that up, that, like, we're watching this after having watched Life of Brian, the kind of mockery. Particularly, I'm going to make another pitch for uh, Hail Caesar, because in, <laughs> in, in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, the movie they're filming is basically, quote, it's, it's basically a hybrid between Quowatis and and then her <laughs> so yeah so this movie was huge massive commercial success nominated for a bunch of academy awards didn't win any but both of us don't like it yeah nope <laughs> i feel like the the main overarching story is perhaps very played out and was maybe one of those storylines that was really intriguing and engaging in the 50s, but is not, uh, is probably a tired and problematic storyline today. And I think like the parts of the movie that I did enjoy, which was mainly the fire and Nero, (laughs) (laughs) I thought he was great, um, are like not, they're like the evil bad parts of the story. It's the the antagonist. And I guess like I hated all of the protagonist storylines in this. Yeah, I I wonder it. This movie kind of suffers for things that are not necessarily. Well, I mean, not that the, it's not its own fault, but like, there's things like like this movie can do, can't do anything about the fact that there's been a hundred other movies, sort of yeah. like it in the preceding sure. years, <laughs> and just like the way like there's yeah there's there's an age like I think like a modern audience such as ourselves or and like people like we didn't necessarily grow up watching these. So, like, I have no nostalgia for this yeah. movie, particularly, mm-hmm. which I think, like, brings it sort of things I don't like about it into sharper, con- you know, into sharper yeah. relief. Yeah. And I think it's it's really the, well, it tries to be kind of like an enemies to lovers trope, but it's it it's more like a love at first sight sort of thing in the storyline. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's get let's, let's get into plot. let's get into that first because I think that's probably our first. So, like the, the sort of main <laughs> plot where there's you know you have Robert Taylor uh, as Marcus yep. Vinicius, this you know Roman sort of red blooded all all Roman <laughs> soldier guy comes back to Rome after a campaign in Britain. I think mm-hmm. they say uh, comes back. Excuse me, I'm like coughing up tea. <laughs> I'm gonna have to edit out me burping tea. <laughs> So yeah, he comes. He comes back to Rome. He falls in love with this woman Lygia, who's sort of a hostage, living but is sort of adopted daughter of this retired general, who's also secretly a Christian. And inexplicably, she also falls in love with him somehow. And then this is set sort of against the backdrop of sort of Nero's tyranny and the Great Fire, and then Nero's subsequent persecution of Christians in 64 AD, which then kind of rams into Nero's assassination, which wouldn't happen until a little bit yeah. after that. But but yeah, and so yeah, so Marcus Vinicius goes from this sort of arrogant, cruel Roman to 
a Christian husband? Uh, yeah, question mark. And over, like, the period of, like, a day. It's like he... And he's, like, obsessive and vaguely rapey in the beginning and, like, orchestrates her being taken out of her adoptive parents' house and, like, she's going to come live with him against her will. Um, and it's, like, super not okay. And then she's, like, nice to him once. And then he's, like, fine, I'll mm -hmm. leave you alone forever. Um, and she's, like, but I actually still really love you. And it's, like, what? When? Why? How? And I don't know. It, it bothers me deeply. Yeah, because he his the the basic arc is kind of in the book. He so he he sees this this woman. He's incredibly creepy to her when so they first creepy. meet. Very very aggressive in a way that I but this is the I wonder how that was would, would have read to like its original audience because like now I think we watch the scenes and to the point where like his sort of you know and I get that like there's an arc going where like he he's gonna go from a sort of flawed for lack of a better word character and then sort of reform and become sure. better at, at the end of the story but for, to me like a lot of is how do i phrase this i'm having sorry my i'm like my brain is not working today me neither i'm with you <laughs> i'm real slow in the uptake so yeah but no, it was like his his flaws were sort of his, his, his the problem his problems were i think too great for me to overcome and in a way that also that it like it, it, I, I didn't for a second believe in the right. Yeah, no, not even, not even a little bit. Because yeah, so, so he meets her. He's very aggressive mm -hmm. towards her right when they meet in the garden. He finds out that he's that she's a hostage. Basically, he pulls strings with Nero's to basically buy yeah. her, for lack of yep. a better word. So he takes, so he takes her to this party where she's just just having a horrible time, and he and he's again coming on real strong. He then. He that she escapes with help of her fellow Christians. He then sort of tracks her down and follows her to a secret meeting of Christians and then follows her from that where his bodyguard, he, he basically attacks her bodyguard, Ursus, mm -hmm. who we can talk about later, knocks him out and kills his bodyguard, Croton, or, or the two bodyguards yep. fight. And then, which I, a scene I actually really did like where Ursus just basically yeets Croton down the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> he just picks the dude. They fight these kind of, they have these like, you know, it's like this muscle men sort of match between these two huge guys. And then Ursus wins and then picks up the other guy and just chucks him down a staircase, <laughs> presumably into a tiger. Yeah, it was great. It was like, where'd that come from? I thought he was just going to like break his neck, but then it got way more dramatic. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. So then, yeah, so then Lygia, excuse me, the the love interest, she sort of nurses Marcus back to health, even though he was sort of following her, <laughs> presumably for an affair. Yeah. And I guess this is because the she's sort of that good hearted. She then confesses her love to him. He seems like he's getting better because he, he's like, all right, like, yeah, you can. I'm, t I'm trying to just remember the movie for no, myself. I, I liked that part when there she's like, I actually love you. And he's like, great, we should get married. Like, uh, I want you mm -hmm. to be my actual like legal Roman wife, which is like probably better than mm -hmm. just her being like a hostage in his house. So it's like maybe a step up. Yeah. But I, I liked that conversation where she's like, you know, I'm a Christian and like, this is really important to me. And he's like, oh, is this like your cross, they have a little crucifix. He's like, we can have that in the house. Like, I don't really care. I'll put mm -hmm. up a real big one. And I think that's so mm -hmm. actually like really reflective of a lot of Roman uh, thoughts about Christianity. They were like, yeah, sure. Cool. Whatever. Let's just put it with the rest of them. We got a bunch of gods. Why, why not one more? Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. totally like reaction of her and like ancient Christians, I think was very true. She's like, no, I actually can't have 
any other gods. It mm-hmm. is just this one, which is sort of the big sticking point and why Christianity became problematic to the Romans is because they didn't yeah. like the other gods. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk okay. more about that. But just to, just to dwell, I think part of it is like, one of the things I kind of was thinking to myself about when I was watching this movie is just how much sort of tastes and standards have changed when it comes to leading yeah. men in movies mm-hmm. like this. Where Robert Taylor, who was by all accounts like a heartthrob, sure. like I read somewhere that they they were they like they were worried about like him with his shirt off and having a hairy chest would be like too scandalously <laughs> sexy. It's so funny. <laughs> well, yeah, which to me, I'm like, like he's I guess like a handsome man, but like I don't like these these sort of um, mid century movie star men, like particularly today, where I think like just the way like gaze works or has been sort of shifting in in like the film and culture landscape today where like there's just a, there just seems to be a lot more emphasis to have for men to look sort of certain sure. ways and i think like it's like most good reflective in like a marvel movie where they'll take like a they'll take like kind of a a slightly chubby comedian like paul rudd or chris pratt or camille yeah. nanjiani and then and then they come out and then they then they show up in the marvel movie and they're like totally shredded <laughs> yep um, it's true <laughs> Uh, and, but yeah, but like that wasn't a thing. That wasn't an expectation on these kinds of guys. There's also something about, like I said, yeah. So like I, I really like couldn't really get on board with Vinicius, both as because I think he's sort of his 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 negative qualities to me at least sort of greatly outweigh his positive yeah. ones. And I'm not even sure because he also does. He seems like he does very little. Well, I think. Yeah, the main, the big thing, so like sort of next in plot is he sort of rushes back into Rome in the fire to try to save her, Yeah, which (laughs) I guess is sort of, yeah, like one, one more step up. It's like this person is not your wife. Uh, She didn't agree to be Mm -hmm. with you. And you're still like, you know, rushing in to an extremely dangerous situation to try to save her. That was sort of like, maybe like top top Marcus Vinicius for me. I was like, yeah, okay. All right. That that seems okay. Yes, that's (laughs) And he does and save he saves other a lot people of people. Yeah, it's like not just mm-hmm. her, not just like her family. It was like everybody, you know, like gets them all out of that sector that was burning, and so that was cool. Yeah, and he yeah he gets them past the guards. Yeah, and then at the end, yeah, because then at the end he basically has he has to watch, and then he is I guess sort of instrumental in in the revolt. Um, I want to also come, we should talk about the Christians first, but I also want to come back to the end where they have they they put a lot of high hopes on Galba, which I <laughs> found really, to be really do. funny. Just really funny. I wrote I wrote in my notes I wrote <laughs> Galba. Um, <laughs> it's like really Galba. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, there's also there's also a thing about just like general if this is. This movie is kind of as like a template going – not a template necessarily, but it's a very sort of early foundational movie for the genre as a whole, which like has waves and like you could even – I was reading so like this – so really like the, the Peplum films in Italy are described as happening in sort of waves. The first one being like kind of pre-World War One, They died down during fascist Italy. This, mm-hmm. this was kind of this would fit sort of into the second wave that's happening in the 50s. And then you could argue there's like a third wave in the 80s. And then a movie like Gladiator really ushers in like fourth wave. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of the movies we were doing at the beginning of this podcast were kind of those fourth wave For sword sure. and sandal films, like those sort of early, early and mid 2000s. But anyways, like speaking of Vinicius is that another point I, I sort of read is very often in this genre, the heroes tend to be kind of very sort of personally motivated. Okay. Like yeah. he does most of, most of the things he does, he does it be either to sort of 
to get with Lygia mm-hmm. or to, to preserve his relationship with Lygia. And not necessarily like he doesn't because at one point he, he he sort of seems at best maybe apathetic towards yes other ro- or other people yeah <laughs> and 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 Christian sort of generally yeah <laughs> or like what's going on like like if if he were not personally invested in the stakes of the persecutions because of Lygia would he would he do have to, like he probably wouldn't have done no. anything yeah and this carries over still in thinking movies like Gladiator where like. Russell Crowe helps Rome, but he does. He's motivated primarily for revenge. Right, right. He's not necessarily. He's not necessarily doing it for you know for the betterment of yeah, yeah of of Rome primarily at least. Right, right. So yeah, so like Marcus isn't actually like worried about the Christian persecutions. He's sort of more worried about Lygia. <laughs> yeah, he just it's because he's got some sort of personal sort of yeah. hook in the game, which makes me wonder. We also like I want to sort of think about just keep this like thought in our brains when we go to Spartacus because I was thinking about like Vinicius versus a character like Spartacus who mm-hmm. it's been a while since I've seen that film but who is sort of primarily like Spartacus fights for the yeah. oppressed yeah no that's so true I didn't think about it that way well what year did Spartacus come out I guess 1960 so okay. Spart- we're about nine years out from Spartacus yeah. the, which also leads me to the, another point that I think that is the this genre, I would say, tends towards conservatism. I can see that. And we were talking, like, particularly, like, in, th- I mean, 300, we were sort of talking how, like, 300, I think, really appeals to even more, like, alt-right types or, mm-hmm. like, neocons and that kind of thing. But they, they generally have, even the ones that are kind of, like, more or less apolitical, like, I would say Gladiator is, like, kind of an apolitical movie. Saying tyranny is bad is not really a, a strong, <laughs> I mean, shouldn't. I don't know, maybe not, maybe it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, be. <laughs> in any in any other year other than January of 2020. We would be like, yeah, like saying tyranny is bad. Yeah, 20 Jesus, 2021. <laughs> saying tyranny is bad would not really be like a super divisive issue. But exactly, yeah, here, yeah, here we are. Here we are. But yeah, so like there are, you know, like like I was also reading like that's not necessarily always the case, but they tend towards like these sort of like particular shades of sort of like cis hetero masculinity sure yeah very sort of i mean this one is is kind of the most strikes me as also this movie was had a rewrite i learned because in one of the original drafts the studio here is the studio was dissatisfied this is what i read so grain of salt but the studio was dissatisfied with the original footage that uh so john huston is is the original director before um, uh, Mar- uh, Mervyn Leroy, who is the director for this movie. Mm-hmm. But the studio was dissatisfied with the original footage because... So apparently the production chief, Louis Mayer, was this arch-conservative. And he was unhappy with the script because he read... They were reading Emperor Nero's Persecutions of Christians as an allegory for anti-communist witch hunts, which is happening in Hollywood at this time. And I think I need to... I don't know if... Have you seen Trumbo? No. So that's about the guy who wrote Spartacus where that is kind of what that movie is. Yeah, that's, (laughs) I remember reading something about, yeah, that, that that's sort of, Mm -hmm. yeah, I am Spartacus is the sort of, you know, I am every man kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think Spartacus strikes me as an odd, like a a, a sort of almost odd man out is sort of in this, but this movie is, I would say, very conservative. Yeah, well, for sure. They made a movie about, you know, early empire Rome, but made it all about Christianity, which isn't, 
really a part of the empire until a lot later. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Christians in this movie. Okay. I mean, unless you have anything more to say about Vinicius. Uh, no. No. I, no. He's boring. I'm still just like, I'm kind of baffled how and why Lygia falls in love with him, but that's neither... That's yeah, neither well, here nor I, I even go back to um, funny thing happened on the way to the forum where it's just like the girl character just sits there and mm-hmm. sings a song about all I am is lovely. And that's literally yeah. all that Lydia does. She just sits there and like looks sad and pretty. Mm-hmm. And, and, she, and she's uh, nice. She's, and she's, she's, yeah, she's, she's nice. She, she's overly generous. And she forgives you know, everyone. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. So, so yeah, you were, you're, you're saying how like the, the class or like the sort of the, the cognitive dissonance of Vinicius sort of like not being able to wrap his head around who and what Christians are is the feels pretty true to life. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense for a Roman perspective. And it kind of struck me as oddly, yeah, oddly true in this kind of funky uh, movie that was so strange up to that point with the whole Nero is the Antichrist thing in the beginning. And then it was like, oh, well, that's actually, yeah, probably a real Roman reflection. Mm-hmm. Is There were so many different gods and cults and mystery cults. And we talked like a little bit about like Mithras mm-hmm. um, or Isis or even Dionysus or Bacchus, although that cult did get kicked out of Rome. But like Romans generally like had no problem with somebody believing or being a part of and actively participating in multiple cults. That Mm -hmm. sort of made sense. You're kind of covering all of your bases. You could be a part of multiple mystery cults. Nobody was like going to be mad about that until Christianity. Yeah. So, and and, and even, well, and a little bit, and even before that with, with Judaism, because sort of, you know, obviously one of the, in this sort of polytheistic world, you're describing the kind of butts head where it is like totally normal for what we call like syncretism to happen for something like a Romans would encounter, say the, these, this other God and, and either map it onto their own gods yeah, or yeah. give it some sort of like sort of adage or say like, Oh, this is Apollo of the blah, blah, blah place or something like that. Yeah. New purpose. Yeah. New place. All of that. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, this is Mars of, you know, this town, the Mars of this town. Yeah. And he's like Mars, but he also does these other things for this town. Exactly. But then in, in with Judaism, the, and the other thing is like, you can, you're free to worship whatever you want, as long as you basically show up to the main state uh, rituals. Yeah. Come out for like the big holidays, like do just kind of, you know, play along. And you're fine. But with Judaism, where the first commandment is no other God before me, yep. they butt heads. And so this this was a lot of tension between sort of Roman administration and, and Jews sort of in both Judea and then as they spread throughout provinces. For sure. And compromises were struck. There were some edicts or like the, of tolerance occasionally, like some emperors would have decrees exempting Jews from certain rituals basically as I think it's just a point where it's like look like we all got to do this we all got to live here <laughs> we got to make we got to make this work and like <laughs> if this is what it takes but yeah and then this was again the, the, the sort of Christianity as origin where your God is exclusive mm-hmm. you can only have the one this sort of creates a created quite a bit of friction yeah with some Rome with with Roman sort of administration in Roman communities. Yeah, and I think especially going later in the empire, like after Nero, when the like divine emperor or as like the state 
God becomes perhaps like a little bit more important than it was in the very early days, that your like uh, refusal to participate in the state religion via like the emperor as a god Mm -hmm. got a little bit more and more problematic, probably. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, like there's, we we talked, there's also just, it seems to be, I mean, that was like obviously a sort of big sort of source of cognitive dissonance like we see with Vinicius. But there's also just, there seems to be like early sources and attests and mentions of Christianity. Like our earliest ones, I think, come from Tacitus and Pliny, so which would have been a little bit after when this movie was set and like the, so this movie is set in 64 AD. Those would have been in like the seventies or eighties AD, maybe a little later that there also just seems to be like, like a general sort of confusion about like what Christianity is. (laughs) I mentioned the Alex Semenos graffito when we were talking about life of Brian of just like where it has the confusion that they think like, is, is Jesus some kind of donkey headed God? Like do they worship a donkey? That seemed to have been a, a, a common sort of rumor going around that Christians worship a donkey. That's so funny. <laughs> or like, I th- seen, I, I've heard even as, as late as, say, like Constantine, who in the 300s was sort of the first emperor to embrace Christianity as an official religion, which was further in the history of religion, one of the most significant things to happen. Yeah. But even that that his interpretation or like how he sort of related to Christianity is is as a matter of sort of great speculation today. And like whether he just, you know, did people sometimes uh Romans might have imagined they thought Jesus was some kind of like sun god or something like that, like mm-hmm. Sol Invictus, which was a very similar cult kind of around the same time from about the same part of the world. Yeah. So there's just like they in like there's mentions of I remember in one of the most famous sources we have about early Christians is a letter that Pliny writes to the Emperor Trajan basically asking what to do about all of these Christians. Yep. Um, <laughs> so and he's good. and he's like he's asking like whether or not he should like arrest and try them, what sort of grounds he should use, whether it was enough just to be Christian or do they have to do some other crime first. <laughs> and there's this kind of a general like there's this sort of general kind of like they're not sure what to and also particularly because at least in its earliest forms, Christianity seemed to have been most popular among marginalized communities like yeah. women and slaves. I think some of our in the early f- formations of the church, women could be bishops mm-hmm. and like yep. priests and religious leaders and often and also slave these were very common and sort of among sort of ha- uh, household slaves, mm-hmm. things like that. Which again makes some degree of sense because part of the nature of Christianity is that it's sort of a salvation mm-hmm. yep. religion. Yep. So it's like endure, you know, the bad things happening to you and there mm-hmm. are promises toward sort of at the end. and But it's also, I think, one of the reasons that it kind of spread was because a lot of those communities created uh, like systems of helping each other. So mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of like food traffic uh, to people mm-hmm. who needed food in very early Christian communities. And so like some, I mean, that's a good thing. People need to eat. But yeah, they were definitely in the lower classes to begin with. So that that brings us back to this movie's vision of early Christianity, and I don't know how to how, how do I put this in a way that doesn't alienate my to worshippers of a religion that has like upwards of a billion followers. Right. <laughs> but I sort of material like this that that sort of is sort of so very actively pro Christian. It has a certain. There's a kind of like, now we have the benefit of hindsight 
we have a tendency to portray the past a little bit differently because we know the outcome. That's mm-hmm. maybe is, is, and this movie is, is sort of a classic example of that, that yes. we know that Peter and Paul are these huge iconic, are going to become these huge iconic figures and that mm-hmm. Christianity is going to become the dominant religion in, in, in Europe and, and many other parts of the world. So, you know, creators and, and so we're inclined both as an audience to sort of put upon sort of heightened importance and then for people to, to write it that way yeah but but yeah like and we were saying last time with life of brian like in the like in this context more often than not these people would have just been one of many other different kinds of people you might have encountered in rome exactly and you may not have necessarily uh attributed them any particular significance more so than any other group yeah it's this like christian determinism or some sort of manifest destiny yes and sort of like manifest destiny of all of the awesome things that will happen or will come from these Mm -hmm. people or these events and this whole very very important christian like martyrdom complex that was my the thing that really sort of rubs me the wrong way the most is exactly that. The <laughs> obsession with martyrdom, which I think carries over into sort of modern, like particularly like, like evangelical American cons- mm-hmm. uh, religious conservatism, things like that, or like, you know, the things like the war on Christmas or, yeah, exactly. that, you know, pe- kids getting sort of chastised for praying at school or that kind of thing. Like there is a sort of big, there, to my mind, there is a sort of baked in obsession with with martyrdom and persecution, even long after the fact. Yeah, I don't think you could really say in in, in seriousness that that there was any sort of large scale Christian persecution, at least in in our part of the world. Yeah, that's ongoing. But man, do they love stories of Christians being persecuted. Yep. Yep. And enduring through that, like the whole scene with the whole the the. The execution scenes. Yeah, yeah. Where they, you know, they've brought all the people into the arena and they, they're always singing and their spirits won't be broken. And, you know, and through their sort of strength and devotion, they sort of turn the public sentiment into their favor and against Nero. Yeah, yeah. And the lions are like dragging fake bodies. <laughs> they got a lot of lions lot for of this lions. movie. I was- oh, I did read that it was so hot the day that they were filming that, that the lions didn't want to come out of the little tunnels and they had to like mm-hmm. bribe them with a whole lot of meat to get them out. <laughs> There's like a certain irony in that, like this movie is the act, the, 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 the act of creating this movie is like a s- incredibly Roman thing to do. Yes. Of like, <laughs> let us make the biggest show on earth and we're going to bring in creatures from all over the world and we're going to have a thousand extras this movie has some sort i think this movie has some sort of record for either the most extras or the most costumes or something like that there are yeah, so many so many people in this movie and i think that's really what it's kind of most remembered for just the like the scenes of you know who's also in this movie another fun fact i learned hmm. there's a brief cameo but sophia loren is in this movie really she is yes <laughs> she is in the triumph scene and there's a part i think where marcus like looks into the crowd and she's one of the like slave girls in the crowd huh and it's sophia loren i want to go back and like watch that little clip again <laughs> yeah that's cool supposedly but yeah but like there's a sort of irony in that like like romans would throw lavishly elaborate spectacles with exotic animals and and hundreds of participants that there's a sort of parallel that this movie is doing a very, very Roman thing. It's true. (laughs) 
I think that's that's like that's my great takeaway is this movie is in, in some ways the most Roman movie we've we've reviewed yet. It's, I mean that's um, very true. Uh, but yeah, this it this movie has a real obsession with put upon and and martyrdomness generally yeah. and just you know and how amazing saint peter was and, and things like that mm-hmm. and it, it it collapses a little bit of history it does <laughs> yes well nero's whole assassination i just i do want to say i think nero was maybe my my favorite let's part talk about nero because nero movie. is i think the most fun thing about this movie played by so peter fun. ustinov who like didn't they like sort of dance around giving him this part and he like kept having to argue that soon he was going to be too old to play nero yeah, it, in his memoirs, he says someday the effect. He says that, like they were worried he was too young, and he said like, "Well, if we wait, if we wait any longer, I'm going to be too old because <laughs> Nero died when he was 31." And I'm like, Fine. I think he was 30 years. I think he was about Nero's age. But like, I mean, Nero is one of these. He's also a, a figure that, uh, because of recent events, has come up a little bit or a lot sure. in public in public discourse. Yep. But he's just one of these <laughs> figures of history that has just captures like infinite fascination. Absolutely. I love, I had a professor describe Nero as like uh, a grumpy rock star. Yeah. Like super jaded uh, celebrity who Mm -hmm. just like has all of this fame and like wants to do all of these like huge, big spectacle things. And he did like write his own poetry and played a bunch Mm -hmm. of instruments. And, but he was like, he just like hated everybody and he was such a dick. And I think that's <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. To do our due diligence, we need to, 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 there's the reputation or the image of Nero that is sort of in, has been in the sort of public imagination since basically his death. And then there's the historical Nero, which is a little bit, because right. one of the sort of problems, for, for lack of a better word, is a lot of our sources on Nero are written by historians like Tacitus, who actively do not like him or sort of everything he stands like and sort of like he his reputation was very much granted he by all accounts probably was a very bad emperor yeah yeah (laughs) though weirdly enough he was very popular apparently his funeral was was widely mourned by the populace of rome i mean again like in another time, we might have been like, how could such an actively bad leader, in, you know, encourage such <laughs> a devout following? But sure, yeah. <laughs> here we are, January 2021. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, but he, I mean, so he, you know, so there was the rumor, there was the rumor that he set fire to Rome and one of Rome's, Rome had a couple of really big fires throughout its history. And one of the most famous is probably this one in 64, mm-hmm. which something like two thirds of the city burned down or something yeah, like that. It's really, really bad. I mean, fire in this time is, is extremely dangerous and they don't have like organized, neither the sort of, they did have a group called the Vigiles who were sort of like a fire department, but they didn't necessarily have the infrastructure. Like, yeah, no. You don't have 911 to call. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, fire hydrants yeah, throughout the city. That too. <laughs> they had fountains though. I will they did they had public fountains. They did. But yeah, the just like the construction of the city as sort of like ad hoc um building mm-hmm. where you needed a building and most of it in like wood or kind of shoddy construction at this time. Yeah, there's no OSHA, no no regulations, no. nothing's up to code. Exactly. <laughs> and if you are, you no know fire escapes. Exactly. So yeah, fire when it did happen and it did, it was really, really devastating. And this was one of the biggest, most devastating ones. But I think what we also sort of point fingers at Nero because 
he made use of yes. the land that burned down. I, 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 part of me, admittedly, there's a part of me that kind of begrudgingly respects Nero for being as true to being the most true to himself a person can be. Granted, he was as at least as, as he's presented to us was a real piece of shit, but he never relented yeah. on that. My, my favorite thing about Nero is supposedly when he was assassinated by his own guard, his final words were, what an artist dies with me, which I'm like, man, what a way to, what, what, like, and uh, yeah, he, I mean, he loved himself. He, he loved himself. He loved himself. <laughs> and yeah, and, and, and probably surrounded himself with like sycophants, yes men and, and things like that, who we see a little bit about, but yeah, he's also this character for, yeah. you know, like an actor like Peter Ustinov to really just like go full, you know, chew that scenery. Yeah. Yeah. Where he is, I mean, he's just going like, well, the thing I kind of really loved about this performance was how he kind of does, I think a good job of like one of the things about Nero, or at least we're told is that he like probably maybe wasn't that good of a poet and a performer. And so like every time he sings, it's like kind of (laughs) crappy. Like it's not horrible, but like, it's not amazing. (laughs) It's not like he has this like angelic voice, but everyone's like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Nero maybe was he if he didn't set fire to Rome, he definitely profited off of it by building a golden Absolutely. house to himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, which I mean, again, like this is Nero's reputation after he was died, they tore down his house and built the Colosseum yeah. over it <laughs> as a public monument <laughs> and a giant middle finger to the emperor. Yep. <laughs> But you can still see parts of it. Um, there's some. There's a really cool. Yeah, it like didn't it like rotate or something like that, or it had like. Maybe it did actually rotate, but I it might has be like that it with something else. Maybe, but it has that really cool dome and those like eight sided. Mm-hmm. It's like an octagonal room or something. Um, it is wild. Yeah, and really cool. I mean, Nero might have been a, like if you were in his sort of inner circle, he might have been kind of chill. I mean, he probably threw great parties. Uh, I mean, you might get your head chopped yeah. off at any moment. <laughs> well, we could talk about Petronius, maybe. Oh, excellent. This. I love it. Petronius is actually my favorite part of this <laughs> this film. And poor Seneca, who just stands there. Just, I know. Because historically, Seneca was Nero's tutor. Seneca, this sort of paradigm, one of the leading sort of voices we have from the ancient world on Stoicism, this very famous philosopher who wrote plays and a lot, huge volumes about preaching things like self-control and <laughs> personal like diligence and self-discipline was the tutor to Emperor Nero. And boy, he failed that charge. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> or I don't know. Maybe there was no helping Nero. Who, who's to say um, Seneca? Cause Nero would eventually exile Seneca. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he sounds like sort of like a bratty kid who turned into a terrible man. So yeah, maybe there mm-hmm. was, there was no, no help for that. Mm-hmm. There's a great, I just I recently we should talk about this at some point, but I recently rewatched that Claudius. I highly recommend you do the same. Okay. But Nero and that is similarly like kind of wonderful. Like he's this kind of chubby. The guy's like this young chubby kid, and he goes like, and when Claudius dies, he goes like, wee, and he like spins around, (laughs) and he's always got like he's he's always got like flowers in his hair, and he's like carrying around his lyre. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's, there's, Nero's a lot of fun. He's, he's, there's, I mean, horrible. He's terrible, but, a lot but of fun. yeah, no, but he's, he's so much fun. At the same he's time. got, I think, my favorite bust of all the emperors. Oh, or his, pro, yeah. his portraiture. Cause it's... he's got this, 
He's got this great like chin strap kind of like his like sideburns kind of come down. Yep. I would know it. Peter it's, Ustinov did pretty well. Like they yeah. he had that facial hair. It was kind of like it's even, in the bust. It's even weirder. It's like it's like a neck beard. It's like pure. <laughs> it's like all neck. Yeah. No face. <laughs> <laughs> but Petronius, we, we kind of jumped away. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do want to say he had like this weird, very unneeded romance with his slave. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was like, this movie. Why? (laughs) I don't know if this is just this movie or it's just the times or just how they understood how love work, where apparently, according to this movie, a woman sees a man and regardless of external circumstances or how he (laughs) behaves or anything like that, just falls, goes insane with love for him, and makes out with his statue. That um, was so weird. I was like, no, please stop. <laughs> and even when they're presumably when they and, and we also were alluding over the fact that when we were first introduced to this character, Eunice, Petronius is going to give her to Marcus. Marcus yeah. As like a gift? basically Yeah. No, he's like as a he she is wildly objectified and then she confesses her love to petronius and he's like yes <laughs> and then and she dies with him and then he's gonna free her when he dies but then she just dies with him yeah the the eunice character is strange to me it just felt very unnecessary it was like we already have this very awkward romance it's like i don't think we needed this one <laughs> yeah I, I don't i don't know what i don't know what was going on there but so yeah leo again playing Petronius. I don't know what to say about. I love. I I, he he was sort of my favorite. He was like you said you like Nero, but I think my favorite part was Petronius because he's the guy who knows how to work the emperor and he does it so well. Where every time you can see him just sort of subtly directing the emperor everywhere he goes by being like you know it's like oh this song's not fit for mortals or like you're too good you know he's sort of like Mm -hmm. he's 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 like incepting Nero to like do to like kind of keep him in, in. in line yeah. until Petronius realizes that he's he's fallen out of favor and he's probably going to get whacked. And so, but his that that letter he writes, I, I love the like when when Nero gets the letter where Petronius <laughs> is basically like, "You're a piece of shit," and I always thought you suck, and I always thought you sucked. Yep. Um, and Nero like reads the letter and he's like he's, he's like, "Oh, Petronius, like he was thinking of me when he died." <laughs> also, no, my favorite part of the movie though was when Nero decides to weep for Petronius and he summons his tear vase yes. and they bring over the little glass file and he cries one tear for Petronius and one tear for himself and then hands the vial back and I was like oh that was I thought I thought that was pretty wonderful that was so good (laughs) oh yeah but but no and then at the end he's like kill all of his slaves like you know (laughs) damn his memory burn all his books and yep we I mean to this day don't have a whole lot of information about the historical Petronius. So yes, so actually my <laughs> I have so many thoughts about Petronius because he just happens to be an author that I have a particular fixation with. But he so there is there is an author of a book called the or a novel called The Satyricon, and we can I should say fairly confidently identify its author, the Petronius Arbiter, with a guy mentioned in Tacitus's history, also named Petronius. Who is sort of Nero's? I think the uh, the the is the arbiter elegendia. He's the like, he's like the fashion judge basically. He's <laughs> for what I understand, like his role to Nero, he was some sort of like like all the members of Queer Eye for Nero or something. Like he was like <laughs> he was like a fashion expert and like culture and literacy and it. just sort of there in Nero's circle, like promoting the arts and like throwing nice parties. Like his official duties were to like 
you know, host parties and things like I that. I love it so much. It's very like, it's all very like Hunger Gamesy. Yes. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and so uh, Petronius eventually falls out of favor with Nero. And uh, the story goes that he took something like a week to kill him. Like he, he, he slid his, his wrists and then bound, bandaged them up and then like partied for like a week while he was like slowly dying. <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, yeah. The Romans love melodrama. Gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, his like his suicide scene was incredibly dramatic in the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine inviting everyone over for dinner and be like, <laughs> but the reason I have brought you here <laughs> is to, is to like, kill myself. <laughs> yes. Is to commit the most sort of performative suicide ever. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then, and deliver, and his dying words that are just, oh man. Killer. <laughs> oh, he, he has some great lines. To be born in your reign is a miscalculation, but to die in it is a joy. <laughs> I can forgive you for murdering your wife and your mother, for burning our beloved Rome, for befouling our fair country with the stench of your crimes. But one thing I cannot forgive the boredom of having to listen to your verses, your second rate songs, and your mediocre performances. Adhere to your special gifts, Nero, murder and arson, betrayal and terror. Mutilate your subjects if you must, but with my last breath, I beg you, do not mutilate the arts. <laughs> it's the biggest middle finger. I love I it. Think, I think that's kind of great. That's like, <laughs> but the, I mean, the Satyricon itself, like I was saying, is this fascinating text. We have basically, we have, it was a novel of sorts and it was almost like, like, what's the, I'm trying to think of like a modern like, it's almost kind of like, I hope they serve beer in hell or something like, like mm, tales yeah. of like, or it's just kind of a raunchy, crude, lowbrow, or like a Judd Apatow film or something like that, where like, it's sure. sort of the misadventures of these, these group of guys. And Colpius is the main one. And, and there's sort of a love triangle with him and a young, and a young boy named Gaetan. And they go to all these different places. And then they sort of have little weird misadventures. The most famous of, we have basically what we think of, like, we have one full chapter, for lack of a better word, of this book. And a little bit on either end. Like the first scene in that is they, they're going to like a brothel. <laughs> of course. Why wouldn't and, they? And there's like, a, yeah, they like interrupt a party. And then the, but while they're there, the brothel gets robbed. <laughs> they, the most famous bit though, is they go to dinner at this, this house of a, a sort of very extravagantly wealthy freedman named Tremalchio, mm -hmm. who throws the most lavish party. There's a Fellini film about yeah, this. Yep. <laughs> that's just kind of surreal to watch. But yeah, and like, there's stuff like, I wrote a, oh man, I wrote a, the first conference I ever, conference paper I ever gave was about the Satyricon. And it was about That's the way fine. the characters, the Freedmen in particular, the way they have these kind of like hypercorrection, like their mistakes yeah, in their yeah. Latin are these like hypercorrective tendencies that reflects their like, they're trying, like Petronius is basically like lampooning like the nouveau riche and like new money and that they're like sort of, they have all this wealth, but they're like totally classless and like... <laughs> Then they just say kind of dumb. They, they 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 try to they try to look smart and sophisticated, but they're just like very clumsy at it. There's like so many great. My favorite. There's a there's a line like where Tremalchio, the the host, he says something like, "I have three libraries: one in Latin, one in Greek." And then he like goes on to the next thing, and then he doesn't even say <laughs> what the third library is. He makes a bunch of puns about stuff. Like it's 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 a fun. It's raunchy, so like fair warning. It's yeah, very crude. It is. But it's a fun read. It is. I like the, I've read a few different like assessments of all the different food that Tremalchio tries to serve mm -hmm. and like how it sort of does something similar to their, their hyper corrections in their language. It's like, 
Mm. They're trying to make something so fancy that it ends up being disgusting, or they're <laughs> actually just eating a bunch of local food that like everybody can get, so it's like not that fancy. <laughs> there's like it's got yeah. I think at one point there's kind of like a turducken thing where it's like yeah. there's like some animal stuffed inside another animal. Definitely, <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> I guess like yeah, the turducken is like a great. It's like <laughs> perfect. Yeah, it's like it's like kind of. I would I would say the turducken is kind of trashy. Oh yes, yes. Because I definitely knew multiple people, may or may not, including my husband, who tried to make that in his college dorm. So, yeah. Oh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you get, how do you cook it all the way? Because it seems like in order to cook the innermost bird, you got to, like, incinerate the outside. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. No, it was mm, – you can ask him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, Petronius is just this kind of master of salt. He's there um, as Nero's sort of advisor – I was going to say, there's a couple of historical figures, obviously Nero and like St. Peter, mm-hmm. Petronius, but also in the background, Lucan, uh, one of my favorite Yeah, poses. they just sort of like glance at mm-hmm. him. <laughs> yeah, he's hanging out in the back. He was another guy that was in Petronius's inner, or not Petronius, excuse me, Nero's inner circle, that he was another poet, a very gifted poet, a very, you know, he had, he achieved remarkable poetic success at a very young age, maybe either, and eventually as we understand, sort of fell into some kind of conspiracy against Nero, was arrested and killed. He, Nero might have also been jealous of Lucan's sort of poetic success. It's hard to say. Lucan's whole poem, which is about civil war, may be like a giant middle finger to Nero also. I mean, it seems to be a common theme in this this area. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he's there. Seneca's, of course, there. The famous philosopher we mentioned, just sort of being... He doesn't really do much in this he movie. He's just kind of there. Yeah. I, th- I really thought we were going to get a lot more Seneca, but we, we didn't. He was just like, just sort of stern. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then I guess the, the uh, not really necessarily something I, I really wanted to talk about. The ending. Because it does, we mentioned that it does sort of, conf- it, it, it compresses a lot of history real quick because it basically yeah. goes from fires to the persecutions immediately to and then the movie essentially says that the the Christian persecutions were what sort of undid Nero because right. at that point this movie sort of in its very let's say wishful thinking or yeah. or maybe <laughs> corrective lens or whatever its particular lens on on history you know sort of the persecution of the Christians undoes Nero and then the army revolts or Marcus's army sort of helps lead the revolt and then at the end they bring in well they're bringing in Galba yep and. <laughs> And they're pinning all they're pinning high hopes on Galba, which is funny. Yeah, what is he in power for? Like a year? Not even. Well, yeah, not even? He's, it's, it's uh, I forget how long he reigned, but it is not long because he's in, he's one of the four emperors that happened in the year of four emperors. Yeah, it's something like it's like nine months, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It was he's one of the longer ones, though, right? Or am I thinking of something else? Give me two seconds. Probably should have looked this up. But yeah, it's like hilarious that... So he ruled from a, for about seven months, about. Okay, seven months. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Feel a little bit better. There was, yeah, because after, you know, so Nero was the last of his sort of dynasty, that, that family of Julio-Claudians. And then there was a bit of a power struggle. Yeah, there was a civil yeah, war. civil war. And eventually ended up with a guy named Vespasian who built the, or he began to build the Colosseum, among other things, mm-hmm. and then things in Rome kind of chilled out for a little bit. Mm-hmm. We had a, you have about a hundred and so years of more or less the, the ship sort of trucks along swimmingly. Yeah, at least in the city, 
think there's mm-hmm. a lot of drama yeah. happening elsewhere, but that's kind yeah. of the case. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but the, yeah, so this movie sort of this movie alleges that sort of the, the Christian persecutions undid Nero when in fact he wasn't assassinated until a few years after right. the, those events. Yep. Though he did blame the Christians for the Great Fire. That is what we are told in the historical record. Mm-hmm. And his was the first of a couple of sort of a few of of persecution mm-hmm. persecutions. Yep. But yeah, but yeah, he was he was not necessarily murdered because of that. In fact, he probably was yeah, in, in fact, not at all. He was murdered probably just because he pissed off way too many people, <laughs> including his own bodyguard, yep. which is a thing. And if you're the Roman emperor, there's, there's one thing, Mark, like we kind of talked about in the beginning. The one thing you should always be sure to do is pay your bodyguard and pay the army. Yep. Because <laughs> Nero was sort of famously not not really huge into the military side of being emperor, no. which alienated him from the soldiers that were supposed to be protecting him and then Eventually, those soldiers, both the guard killed him, and then those soldiers took their general and made them, or their generals, Mm -hmm. and made their generals emperor. I realize we didn't talk about what quo vadis means. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) yeah, I'll I'll put this part in the beginning. Which is something that Nick asked me. (laughs) He's like, what does that mean? Uh, It means drive it like you stole it. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's, it's something that sort of pops up at the very end of the movie, when or it's Peter's like going to leave Rome mm-hmm. and he sort of runs into an apparition of Jesus on the road and he says, uh, Quo Vadis Domine, where are you going, Lord? Or they say it in some stupid way, like whether where to goest thou or something. Um, we yeah, we should that. also we should also say we we are saying Quo Vadis when is this movie is it called Quo Vadis? I don't or... know. I just say it normal. <laughs> Well, yeah, because in Latin, V's are pronounced like W's, or they were for most of Roman history. They would eventually become V's. But yeah, but the apparition of Jesus says, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified again. Mm -hmm. And that sort of convinces Peter to turn around and go to his own martyrdom. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, where he will be is literally called, where are you going? (laughs) Yeah. We should maybe, I could put that part in the front. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I was like, yeah, I, kind of a weird, weird thing to call the movie. Oh, there was one, there was one thing I wanted to talk about that I almost forgot. Mm. The little model, the model city. Ah, uh, yeah. Little, what's it called? Chine Chita, something like that? Yeah. The, the cinema city. So yeah, cute. that's, yeah. So, I mean, so that, that's a very famous, you can go see it today if you go. So there's a whole section of Rome uh, where they have the, I think it's, it's the museum of, the museum of Roman civilization. <laughs> Oh, it's been closed for renovation since 2014. Oh, didn't they film parts of Rome there? The HBO, HBO's Rome? I would not be surprised. They, so it's this whole, so there's the, the thing that we should really say up front is that little model of the city and the museum it is in is a product of fascist Italy. It was built by Mussolini. The fascists were, I mean, this is sort of true across the board where fascists really love ancient Rome mm. as this image of sort of empire and power and, so there's all sorts of Roman ancient imagery all throughout sort of not just fascist Italy, but sort of regimes like that. But it's a so that there is a the probably the highlight in this museum is this, I think, like I'm trying to get the scale right. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's it. No, it's a huge. I'm trying. to Yeah. What's the like? It's a <laughs> it's a two scale model of the city. It's a one to 250 scale. So it's one it's one 250th of the size of the real city. 
damn it's huge yeah it's big it's like you, you the way when you see it it's like you walk into this room and there's like a balcony like you're on almost like a sort of almost second story balcony looking down at this model and you can walk all the way around it and the model is maybe about 10 feet below you or something like that maybe a little little higher and you can walk totally around and it's just like a giant incredibly detailed model of Rome and then just to have our little sort of pedantic nerd moment <laughs> that model of the city <clears throat> actually is modeled after fourth century ad rome so when nero's <laughs> looking at the rome he's actually looking at future rome um because he says and yeah and i have my little like nerd moment because he's looking you can see the pantheons right there and it's like no <laughs> yeah like famously like there's like elements to the city that have not yet been built so funny various bathhouses and things like the Colosseum. but nero's looking right that he's basically right over the pantheon i was like well the Pantheon might have been built by Marcus Agrippa, but that version of it wouldn't be built until Hadrian for like another hundred years. So, yep, you know, yep. one point for Colin, uh, zero <laughs> points for MGM. <laughs> Take that movie that is now 70 years old. Good job. Um, Good job, Colin. Yeah, I, I showed them. But yeah, but that's like one of the, the centerpieces. They're filming in Rome and they, Nero is there and he's looking at this tiny little replica of the city. But that's like that's a fun little Easter egg. Yeah, planning his huge golden house. <laughs> yeah it's also it's also i realized like nero is nero is actually the 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 here's my here's my theory the takeaway from this movie this movie is nero is the precursor to cusco yes new groove. absolutely that is exactly what cusco is doing he wants to raise a bunch of peasants houses so he can build his cusco-topia his <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly well he even says as he, he goes uh neropolis right he's like we're gonna yes. make Nero yeah, neropolis yep. or something yeah that's so mm-hmm. funny <laughs> cusco-topia i love it that's our stinger i think that's that's what i'm gonna have to put that in the front my, my hot take is uh, nero is cusco um <laughs> I like it. All right. Do you have anything? Um, I'm. I think I'm hitting. That's most of the things I sort of talk. I wanted to talk about. Yeah. No. That really covered. I covered my my thoughts. Yeah. That's like kind of uh, all I got going on. I think so. We are. We just hashed out, and we took a little fifteen minutes to do a little housekeeping planning. But <laughs> we hashed out. We're going to be coming next week. We're going to take a little break from the classic Hollywoods to do a new movie that came out, The Dig. Yeah. Uh, on Netflix. Archaeologists and are very, very excited about it. So I wanted, wanted it to be in our rotation. Yeah. Excellent. Have you have you heard any of it? I'm not up on the, I'm like, if there's like Twitter chat or anything like that. It came that out today. It. So I have not heard a word. I'm excited. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll be getting into our first actual digging movie. <laughs> there might only be one. <laughs> digging nah, movie. Nah, I mean, I... Indiana Jones, right? That's a Does he movie. dig a hole in that entire franchise? He gets, in the first one, he gets a bunch of Egyptians to dig the hole for him. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, for early 20th century archaeologists, I think it, I they, it counted for them. I suppose. Yes. <laughs> All right. So th- thank you guys for listening, and we'll be back soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.